Welcome back, everybody, to episode four of Wrongful Convictions and Cold Cases. I'm so glad you're joining us. And again, stay tuned for Starv Rock. I know we got a lot of Starv Rock fans out there. I'm working on a bonus episode for that. Hope to have one out soon. Hang tight. But today, I'm excited to have Dr. Nikki Ali Jackson with us. Uh, Dr. Jackson is a professor of criminal justice at Purdue University Northwest. She's also the executive director at the Center for Justice and Post-Exoneration Assistance at Purdue University Northwest. And since its inception in 2020, Dr. Jackson has served as president of the Willie T. Donald Exoneration Advisory Coalition. She has appeared in a variety of TV, radio, and print media outlets, including People Magazine, True Crime Daily, People Magazine Investigates, Freedom Files, Oxygen, I could go on and on. She has a real passion for truth, social justice, equality, philanthropy. It's resulted in numerous awards. She's probably too modest to talk about, so I will do it. And her most notable recognition is being a recipient of the prestigious Sagamore of the Wabash Award, the highest civilian honor granted to an Indiana resident for her humanitarian efforts by Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb in 2000. I could go on and on. Dr. Jackson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. There's a lot to talk about. I want to do two things. I want to talk a little bit about starting out with the work you're doing now. And then I also want to talk about, uh, I think, the case that's at the top of your to-do list, the case of Chris Bynum. But let's start out now. I know... Your focus today is on wrongful convictions, and I know you are the executive director for the Center for Justice and Post-Exoneration Assistance at Purdue Northwest. Tell me about the kind of work you're doing now. So our whole purpose, our, our mission is to identify and eradicate miscarriages of justice, all forms of miscarriages of justice, but, but our primary focus is um, to eradicate uh, a wrongful conviction. And we also want to provide support to those who have suffered from a miscarriage of justice or a wrongful conviction. I think it's one of the things that gets overlooked is support for people that have either been wrongfully convicted or people that just get out of prison. You know, you serve your sentence and now what? They give you a bus ticket, send you on your way. Tell me about I, one of the things when you and I spoke that I was impressed with was the work you did in passing that bill to get compensation for, was it for wrongly convicted people in Indiana? That's correct. So HB 1150 was passed in 2019, and that bill was the first of its kind here in Indiana where an exoneree, somebody who comes out of prison and who's factually innocent, um, would be eligible to receive $50,000 per year for their wrongful conviction. And Andy, just think about this. It, it, you, you talked about it a few minutes, or just actually a minute ago, but a person who comes out of prison, they don't have anything, right? They typically don't have much other than what, whatever's in that bag that, that they leave the prison walls in. But what people don't know about exonerees is that they're not eligible for the same services somebody who actually committed a crime. So if you commit a crime in Indiana, you commit a rape, a robbery, a burglary, a murder, 
we actually have services for you. We have a parole officer that will help you with housing, with employment, with medical, with dental. If you come out and you were wrongly convicted based on factual innocence, we, we have nothing for you. you. You're not eligible for those services. To hear you say it that way, I mean, that really that's really remarkable because the wrongfully, you know, an exonerated person needs those services as much or more. I mean, you know, as much or more. And they spent the time in prison. So it's the same kind of things that apply. So what are you doing along those lines? What, what kind of things have you done? We actually have four pillars that we work um, with at, at our center. One is one of the things that we focus on is legislative reform, such as that compensation bill that, that I worked on before we actually even got the center started. Um, I literally just testified on a bill before the Senate on the use of deception during custodial interrogations of juveniles. Um, and thankfully that bill was passed that police can no longer lie to kids during an interrogation. So we're working at, at looking at what is needed out there, what, what is missing, what is needed to help protect citizens, just like you and, and, and me. Uh, another um, pillar of our work is to investigate claims of factual innocence. And I think you and I are gonna talk a little later about a case uh, that we, we're highlighting right now. We do not um, accept cases where somebody is guilty of a crime, but they're saying, I was wrongly convicted because of a procedural error. We, we don't work with those cases. We only work on cases where there is this claim of factual innocence. The other thing that we do is we, we work on education. We want the community to better understand wrongful convictions. And just recently, I was uh, awarded a grant from Legacy Foundation in Lake County, Indiana, where they provided me funds that we could go out and we could do police trainings. So we are now going to six police departments in Lake County, Indiana, and we are doing these different trainings. Uh, it's really a course on wrongful convictions. We give a pretest and a post-test. And thus far, um, we found that whatever we have presented has you know, it's it's work. You know, the officers didn't score very highly at the at, during the pretest. Their scores were were definitely elevated after the presentation. So that's really good to know. Um, we also work on post exoneration assistance, which is what we were just talking about. When people come out of prison, they need help. We don't have any services, so we are here to help people get back on their feet. I mean, one of the first things we have to do is find where are they going to live. How are they going to pay rent, right? Resumes, where, how do you explain where you've been for two decades, three decades, whatever it is. So those are some of the things that we're working on. We just helped a 70-year-old man find a job. He'd been incarcerated for 25 years on a rape he did not commit. He, yeah, it's horrible. And he's 70 and, you know, he doesn't have, and he was working up until the time of his arrest. And, but those 25 years, he lost social security, he lost pension, he lost everything. So now he's living, you know, just barely living is what I should say. See, somebody like that in Illinois, we've got a procedure, they call it our certificate of innocence. Um, you know, you could apply for that. If you get it, it's a sliding scale, depending on how long you're incarcerated. 25 years, I think he'd get the max, which is, gosh, I, it's, it's over, it's over 200, it's about $250,000. So it gives you it's it's it no way compensates you for your 25 years in prison, but 
What it can do is, how do I live my life now? How do I get housing? How do I buy groceries? How do I get a car? You know, things like that. And people forget about those issues. But I think you brought up a good point about education. We're going to talk about, you know, factual innocence and wrongful convictions. I think when I talk to people about some of my cases, you know, you know, the, the naysayers are just the people who are like, oh, well, the person confessed. Oh, well, they court found him guilty. The jury heard the evidence. It's like they don't understand a lot of people. And I get it because they haven't had experience with it. They don't understand the concept of false confessions, how they do happen. And they're real. We can debate how often they happen. But it's absolutely 100% you know, a real concept. The case that I always talk about with people here in Illinois was the case of Kevin Fox, well-known case. His daughter, this little three or four-year-old daughter went missing. He got brought to the police station, interrogated, wound up confessing to not only killing her, sexually assaulting her. And I remember, I remember at the time thinking, oh my God, I would never admit to doing that. He's got to be guilty. I think I, I felt the same thing. And I think his daughter was Riley. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 100%. They got the guy who did it. You know, it's, yeah. it's case closed. There's no debate. That case is the one I think should be kind of the poster child for wrongful confessions. So let's talk about this case that you're working on, Chris Bynum. I will first say as a caveat up front, I've been I was just spending some time reading up on this case. Uh, this is not a case. If there's any case that can't be covered in one podcast episode, it's Chris Bynum. There are there are too many moving parts. You got murders at two different locations. You got multiple suspects, multiple confessions, multiple people's names pop up. It really could and should be a multi-part podcast with a lots of twists and turns. But let's start here. How did you hear about the case? How did you hear about Chris Bynum? How did it come to your attention? There was a story done on my work with um, my project manager now, who was wrongly convicted, um, for, and he spent 24 years in prison for murder and robberies he didn't commit. And People Magazine did a story on, on, on us and, and who we are. This is before the center even opened. And um, this we got lots of letters. I received hundreds of letters from inmates all over the country asking for help. Well, this one day I open up Facebook and there's a message in Facebook from a woman saying her brother was wrongly convicted from the same, like wrongly arrested from the same police department as my project manager. And that obviously kind of popped out. So I started communicating with her and I explained to her that, you know, he, her brother has an attorney. I'm not an attorney. I'm a PhD. Um, I'm not sure what I can do to help. And she said, please just look at the case, you know, just review it and whatever you can do. And so it was his sister, Mr. Bynum's sister, who reached out to me initially and asked for us to help raise public awareness about his wrongful conviction. And that's what we've been doing. But before we did that, we, we started researching the case, of course. Who is your project manager that was wrongfully convicted? My project manager is um, Timmy Donald. He, he is, if you go to the National Registry of Exoneration, it's Willie T. Donald. He was wrongly convicted in Gary, Indiana. Um, he was arrested in 1992 for a, a string of robberies and a homicide. He was with his sister and his now brother-in-law car shopping. And salespeople even said, you know, they saw 
they they saw a man with the sister. Regardless, he ended up become he he became for whatever reason uh, it was mistaken witness identification. He'd never been in trouble with the law. His picture, actually, a lot of folks have a hard time understanding this, but his picture got thrown in a six pack because. Three years earlier, he had been pulled over by the Gary uh, Police Department because his friend's car looked like it had been um, tampered with. And, and, and Timmy has shared that it did look like it had been tampered with, so he could understand why they got pulled over. But then when the friend's uncle came to the police department and said, no, this is my car. I loaned it to my nephew. You know, the, this is not a stolen vehicle. Mr. Donald, his picture was taken before the uncle came. So hit that mugshot year, you know, several years later was thrown into, can you imagine, thrown into a homicide and robberies. I mean, this is a guy that didn't commit a crime. They let him go, wasn't even arrested, but his picture ends up in this book. And the next thing you know, that's another story in itself that maybe one day we could do a podcast on and have him on. He, he can share his ordeal, but he ends up getting 24 years with no evidence, no nothing. And years later, one of the women who picked him out, she said for 24 years it had bothered her because she knew it wasn't him. In fact, one of the victims was a former uh, retired Gary police officer, and she actually said it was not him, but he was still convicted. Witness misidentification is, is it might even be the leading factor of wrongful convictions. It is the leading factor. I think the good thing now is we're aware of it happens a lot. And so these days, uh, not like in the old days, you could get charged with a murder based on just a witness ID. I think today you would not. If that's all you had, the police or the detectives would probably say we need more or the state's attorney's office would say we need more because they realize witness misidentification is so, the error rate is so high. All right, so the year is 2000. Gary, Indiana will set the stage uh, February 17th, 2000. We've got five homicides in Gary, Indiana. We've got three people murdered in a house and then two women found murdered at a nearby, like it sounds like it's a baseball field. So five murders. How does Chris Bynum get on the police's radar screen? You find these five people murdered. Why do they go to Chris Bynum? It's a great question. We still don't know the answer. Um, I can give you theories, but we really don't know the answer. Um, according to the trial testimony, we read that the Gary PD got a, a tip and named, there were three people named and a guy named Chris was named. And that's all we know. It was a guy named Chris. Um, we also know that um, the brother of the only male victim had told the police that his brother had called him earlier that night and said he was scared because Chris came over waving a gun. And so he was scared, you know, for his life. And then he ends up being murdered. But it's not clear. It is absolutely not clear how the last name Bynum was introduced into this case. We still don't know the answer to that. It's a mystery. Yeah, I read something that, so at the house, you've got three adults, uh, I think two women and a man who are shot and killed. But uh, there's like a, a boy, what is he, 10, 12 years old, a boy who's there, who's in another room, who is not, who survives, not shot, and hears a voice that I think he tells the police that it sounds like Chris, right? That's the voice. Correct. So 
maybe because there's a, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of Chris's out there. So it's like, you know, um, yeah. that doesn't seem like enough that your name is Chris, but. Um, you think, right? Well, I don't know if there was a connection, like if Chris Bynum knew these victims, you know, had some prior association with them. Yeah, actually, he, he, there, the four women were white. Uh, the two women who were killed in the house were sisters. And the male, it was African-American, and he was the boyfriend of one of the sisters. And um, from what we know, Chris Bynum knew the male victim from the neighborhood. I mean, they weren't friends. They didn't go hang out together, but they had seen each other. Just like, you know, I see my neighbors down the street and I know who they are. I know what kind of car they drive, but we don't like all socialize. But he said he'd never met. He knew of the girlfriend. He knew, he'd seen her before, but he didn't have like communications, didn't socialize with them. Definitely did not know the women in the ball field. So the state's attorney's office gets the case. They charge it. They try it. Um, well, Chris, Chris Bynum gets brought to the police station. And I know from reading, um, some of the documents I read, he winds up getting interrogated for like nine plus hours and he winds up giving, sounds like two different confessions. And that's how basically what leads to him getting charged. But it does not sound like I ever read anything about why, you know, what his motive would be, you know, five people are killed here. Well, and let's, let's just back up. Um, so people understand how these, what happened that night. That evening, this boy, we'll call him LB, he's 12 years old, he hears a bunch of people in the, at, at his mother's home and the, you know, the mother, the aunt, and the aunt's boyfriend, he hears all of this noise, fighting, arguing, and then he hears people leaving. Later that night, and it's, you know, we're talking around 2 a.m., something like that, he, and it's a school night, it's a Wednesday to Thursday morning, he hears two men and he looks out the out of his door he peeks out the door and he hears two, he only sees one person and he describes this person to the police as a very dark man with a big nose and a gap in his tooth that's what he says now he says he hears a voice and it sounds like chris that's all he said and you know to the police but what what's interesting is he hears two men talking and one says put shells in her. And the other guy says, don't rush me. I know what I'm doing. Okay. So we know that this conversation happened. So there's at least two perpetrators in this house. There's also a baby in the house. The baby is an 18 month old who is when the police come covered with blood on the couch. All right. This, this little girl, this baby was just laying on the couch. So this happens, he calls the police around 2.30 in the morning, they come, you know, his mother dies 90 minutes later, the other two are dead on the scene. That next morning, just so that your audience can understand this time frame, the next morning between 11 a.m. and noon, a dog walker spots two bodies in this baseball field. He also spots like a car. So these two bodies were in these like kind of not hidden, but they were kind of hidden. If, you know, you, they were in dis, uh, full display, but they were kind of tucked under these bushes. And there, one was fully nude. One of the victims was fully nude. The other one was 
partially, you know, her clothes were, were disarrayed. She wasn't nude, but she was definitely, you know, top pulled up, pants kind of pulled down, whatever. And there's a car there. So the police, the one detective decides that, you know, that these crimes have to be related. Um, and so that's how they started the investigation. The medical examiner's office came, did a sexual assault kit on both of the women in the ball field, but they, the Gary PD never had those sexual assault kits tested. At least we've never seen them. They never test them. I hear this a lot, like evidence was collected, but not tested. Sexual assault kit, but not tested. Why not? Why not? I mean, I think one of the things I've talked about a lot is I think a lot of times detectives, when they've got who they think is the right person, there is a reluctance to look down other investigatory avenues. Oh, we're going to unravel the whole case. Well, you know what? Maybe the case needs to be unraveled. Let's find the truth. So the fact that they didn't process those rape kits is is uh, indefensible to me. But the, the five victims, three in the house, two in the ball field, they're all linked ballistically, aren't they, to the same like type of bullets or something? Yeah, there there is linkage to, I'm not a ballistics expert, so I can't, I, I'm just going to talk in lay terms, but there was a link to to some of the, the bullets, but I do believe the expert testified during trial that some of the bullets were mangled. So it, it was, it's not 100% sure if, if it came from that specific 38 revolver. But do you think the, do you think the two crime scenes are related? It's a good question. And people keep asking me that. I'm not sure. Uh, if I had to guess, and this is just speculation, I would say they are. But I do believe the police should have investigated them separately as well, because we really don't know if they are. The only connection we know, and this is the reason I say I believe it, that they probably were related, is the boy, LB, heard his, I believe, aunt arguing earlier that night with a woman named Liz. Well, the dead one of the dead women in the ball field was named Liz. The fact that the Gary police do not process the rape kit. You've got, you know, these two women found at least, you know, nude or partially nude. I don't understand that at all. What, what's the explanation? We, well, they've never been asked, I guess. You know, well, you don't have to be asked. That's their job. I mean, yeah, nobody well, asked them. Who's who's supposed to ask them? Right. That's what I'm saying. I, I don't know why they didn't do it. Do those kids still exist? Yeah. So that's I was going to get to that. But since we're here now, those kits exist and they were tested in 2017. And they were tested. The, yeah. The the attorney for Mr. Bynum, she's smart. She had them tested. And when she got the results back. It's like, wait, what, what happened? She got the results back and there were two hits in the oral cavity of one of the victims. There was a hit and that hit was to a Gary police officer's son. Holy moly. Yes. Yes. And nobody Holy to our moly. knowledge to date has ever talked to that, that son who he is incarcerated right now in Mississippi. So let me make sure I understand this. Okay. When the rape kits are processed, we're talking about the two women at the ball field who are found nude or partially nude. And there is, I take it, there's semen recovered from one of the victim's mouth? Correct. And then is it semen inside the other victim? 
Um, vaginal. Okay, right. All right, so that's semen. They do DNA testing. On the, and oral, the semen On the oral cavity. The, the oral, the oral, from the oral mm-hmm. cavity is, is linked to the son of a Gary police officer. You got it. Okay, so there are no known interviews of this person? None. Zero. What? And he's not hard to find, Andy. He's incarcerated. We're going to have to have a part two here because, I mean, it'd be one thing if you said to me, well, they interviewed him and he claimed he was playing pool that night and, you know, he can't explain how his DNA got inside of her oral cavity, uh, blah, blah, blah. But not even to talk to him sounds like a colossal (laughs) red flag. Tell me, tell me the more part. So the DNA found in the vaginal cavity of one of the victims, it belongs to an unknown person, but it matched a, another homicide. This is so confusing. There was another homicide in 2010 in Lake Station, Indiana, which is very close to Gary, Indiana. And in this homicide, it was a man who was killed um, and he was shot execution style and all of these other, the Five victims were also shot execution style. Well, the police know who that killer was. Okay, so they have cleared that crime, that homicide in 2010. They've got this guy. Well, when they were investigating that homicide, they collected DNA from a doorknob of that house where the man lived, where he was murdered. The DNA on that doorknob matched the DNA in the vaginal cavity of the victim in 2000. Are there reports of him being interviewed, that guy? We don't know, well, oh no, you mean the man who was, con- con- no, no, there are no reports. Yeah, so so there, there's a person whose DNA is found on the 2000, you know, on the victim in the 2000 ballpark murder, and then they're found on a doorknob at a crime scene 10 years later. What I'm saying is, has that person been interviewed about you know, when they get the DNA in 2010, the match, do they interview that person about the 2000? I, I, I have not seen anything. I'm not saying they, nobody has, but it's doubtful. I've not seen one document. The other thing is, okay, I'm, and I'm just kind of playing, not even devil's advocate, but I guess there's an argument you could make that semen inside a person's vagina could have potentially been there before they got murdered. Sure. But I find that to be a much more difficult argument for the other person. Um, that seems like a contemporaneous thing when you when you collect it from the from the mouth. Uh, the yeah. mouth. You know, yeah. I mean so that she had that to clearly eat. Seems, she had a spit, she had a yeah, And I mean really it's not even a even for the other victim, I mean they're both found basically partially nude. So you know, it's clearly appears to be a sexual assault. And these women didn't know each other until that night. So because this is just one podcast episode and we're doing a very, very condensed summary, and I'm sure people are going to be like wanting to hear a lot more about this. You know, if if we can come up with some new stuff, we'll do a part two. But you've talked about the DNA. Is there is there more in terms of evidence that you think exonerates Chris Bynum other than the DNA on those two women in the ballpark? Well, first and foremost, the reason we took on this case was not because of the DNA, because we hadn't even, we didn't know about the DNA, but because of the statements that he made. This was 2000. He was interrogated um, and not according to Chris. And of course, this is what he says. And so people say, well, you don't know if that's true or not. But regardless, he says he was not allowed a, a to make a phone call to call an attorney. And his 
fiance had been pulled over before him. She was driving his car, actually. They locked her up for about 13 hours, 12 or 13 hours before, well, they kept her locked up even after they picked up Chris. And then they bring him to where she was, you know, she was being held. And they say to Chris, one detective, according to Chris, one detective says, you better tell us what I tell you to say or she's going down and your one-year-old son is going into foster care. So Chris said, I'll say whatever you need me to say. Cause he thought this, according to Chris, he thought that, you know, once he got an attorney, everything would be resolved. Well, didn't happen that way. The next day they bring in somebody else who was one of the three that was named in that tip. And they throw him in the range at the jail next to Chris. And he threatens Chris saying, I heard you implicated me because in the first statement, Chris says he was at the house. He says that he didn't do the shooting. Two other guys did the shooting. Um, But everything he describes doesn't match the crime scene, which is really interesting, right? So 56 hours after that first statement, I believe it was 56 hours, he makes a second statement. So listen to this, this detective Donald picks him, gets him out of the jail cell. And he says, you know, Chris, you're going to make another statement. And and this is according to trial testimony. I want you to think about this. This isn't what Chris has shared. This is what Detective Donald said during trial. Detective Donald, when asked, why did Chris make a second statement? He said to make amends for his lies in his first statement. So they asked, the attorney asked, how did this happen? How did he make that second statement? So Andy, I've not even shared this with anyone yet. You're the first to hear this. But he says in trial, this detective says that he's in another interview room and there's a knock on the door. He opens the door and Chris Bynum is there and says, I want to make a confession. Are you kidding me? This guy's in an interrogation room and he's just going to walk out of this interrogation room and he's going to just go walk around the Gary Police Department, yeah. knock on a door and say, I want to make a, another statement. It's absolutely ludicrous. It could not have happened. They... You're, you're there for five murders. They're going to cuff you to a chair or something. Yeah. Those doors, usually you can't get out. <laughs> um, no, no, you're not just walking around. Wow. That's pretty skeptical. I look at these cases, the way I kind of look at these cases, all the things that you say Chris said, it may or may not be true. Uh, uh, but I always like to focus on the forensics first. And so to me, this case, where I go first with this case is the DNA. You know, you got the DNA from the two women in the ball field that, you know, matches the Gary police officer's son and this other guy with two murders. Their fingerprints in the car, they were tested against Mr. Bynum and even the two women, and all were negative. Like, they found no fingerprints of any of them. So you've got got some strong forensic evidence pointing to other people. Sure. I want to talk about another thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm jumping way ahead here, too. I was reading one of the court opinions from 2021, and um, there's in, t- in 2014, this other guy, Gerald Terrence Matthews, his statement, a confession is mailed to some attorneys where this guy, Gerald Matthews confesses to the case. What, tell me about that. Cause I, I mean, now it, now it's getting even wilder and weirder. 
this case is so crazy. It's uh, it, it's hard to even explain it all. But I've watched the the video confession. It's very confusing. We we it has been tested. Um, his attorney had the um, the actual video confession on the cell phone tested to see if it had been tampered with and it had not. But here, let me just tell you what happened. So in 2014, a guy named Gerald Matthews gets out of prison. He had been in prison for drug violations and he is looking for a place to live. And he goes to some guy and he asks this man, can I live, you know, in your apartments? And the guy says, no, I don't rent to ex-felons. So, and this is all, it, this is part of a deposition. So I'm not like, this isn't something Chris told me or somebody told me Chris wouldn't even know because he doesn't know about this, you know, about this videotape. But anyway, so one day, and you have to understand this all happens in three and a half weeks. So Matthews asks this man who says, no, you can't live here. He says, well, can you at least give me a job? So the guy says, sure, I'll give you a job. So one day on the job, Matthews comes in, they're talking and Matthews tells his boss, I feel like I'm going to die early you know, something, he, he was scared. All right. I, I feel like I'm going to die early. So his boss is a religious man said, if you, you know, if you think you're going to die, I think I'm going to die early too. you know, make peace with your maker, like, you know, get all your sins out, blah, 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 blah. So shortly thereafter, Matthews approaches his boss and he hands him this big manila envelope and he says, if something happens to me, make sure the contents of, of you know, the, what's in this envelope gets out to the appropriate authorities. After he hands him this, a week later, Matthews is murdered. He's gunned down on the streets, right? So his boss sees on the news that this guy is gunned down. Now he has this manila envelope. He opens it, and in there is a... A small, do you remember those flip phones? A small, a small flip phone, a burner phone. Uh, there's some CD-ROMs and there are some written statements that are notarized. So he, this guy opens the video, he reads the stuff and it's a confession. Matthews confesses to all five of these, of these murders. I was reading a December 13th, 2021 court opinion where... Chris's basically like post-conviction attempt was denied. But what I found compelling is the court actually said, well, when he gave that statement, he wasn't facing any penal like incarceration, blah, blah, blah. Cause when he wrote it, you know, it was in secret, but I find the opposite. I find it like, to me that it, it gives uh, an indicia of reliability in that don't release it until I'm gone uh, he puts it in a manila envelope. His boss doesn't even know what's in there. It's like that all strikes me as having, in my gut, a real sense of reliability. But here's where here's where I get turned upside down. Apparently, he claims in his confession, you know, that he raped or had sex with the with the two women, and his DNA is not. No, no, no. Let's let's be clear. What he says is that he went to the ballpark to have sex with the women. He never says he has sex. And that's why there is, we don't even know if his DNA has been tested, but what we do know is he says, I, we went to the, Liz and Sheila and I went to the ballpark to have sex. And then he says, we got into a fight. So if we pause there, what that means is, if you play this out, now you've got three potential perpetrators, right? You've got Gerald Matthews who gives this confession on this burner phone. You've got the DNA of the Gary police officer's 
son. You've got the DNA in the other woman, but his confession doesn't implicate other people, does it? I mean, Matthews, he doesn't say like, oh, and uh, I killed him with uh, person A and person B. Yeah, actually he does. He says he and a, a guy, this is, this is public record, he said he and a guy named Rob G., um, who had died in a car crash in 2004. So he names him because there's no retaliation. This guy's dead. Um, so he says, me, Rob G., and others. But he doesn't name the others. And my guess is he doesn't name those others because they're alive. Um, I, I don't know. But he also says in his confession that I hear a guy named, an innocent man named Chris is sitting in prison. First of all, I don't know how like, why did he name Chris? There's a lot of questions about the Matthews confession. I, I will say there are questions about it. Um, why was he so specific about Chris? But he also knew all the details. And we've had, you know, crime scene analysts look at it and, and look at the autopsy reports, his confession, looked at Chris's confession and say, hey, you know what? Matthews confession matches both crime scenes, including motive, including motive. And he even explains that he beat one of the victims at the ballpark with, do you remember those clubs? I might be dating myself, but you remember those clubs that went on the car? Yeah, you put on your steering wheel, the anti-theft club. Yeah, of course. So he explains that he beat her and he does this. He says, I beat her with a club and he's motioning, you know, back and forth. And at the autopsy, you know, when there was the autopsy on that victim, there was this this um, indentation on the, the one of the victim's heads. And the prosecutor believed it must have come from, um, I believe it was the gun. But now that Matthew says it was the club, when you look at those pictures, I mean, I'm not a, a, a you know a crime scene expert, but I'm just as a common sense and it, it kind of matched. So it wouldn't make sense. The problem with Matthew's confession, and this is why I think there's been a lot of um, skepticism about his confession, is that there was another attorney who was working on successive relief years before, and he had received four affidavits from four different people. And those four people identified different suspects. We haven't even talked about those. Those yeah. I'm not going to get into <laughs> their names. But there were two other people who were named. And one of them was on that original list on the on the tip, right? But there was another guy Again, actually, it was another guy. Uh, Rob G. also was mentioned, but the the other man was not mentioned by Gerald Matthews. But that could be because he's alive, or it, maybe it wasn't him at all. So when you're looking at this, you've got four witnesses who say they saw one man and Ro another man and Rob G. commit these crimes in different places, different people. But then you've got Matthews making this video confession, saying it was him and Rob G. and others. So I think. If you're, you know, sitting on this court and you're reviewing all this, you're probably thinking somebody's lying. Who's lying? Well, I think that's a good question. Who is somebody lying and who it, who is lying? Well, nobody's named Chris Bynum. That's all I can tell you. I do want to go back to, I think it's very, to me, you know, if it, if the way you described it, putting this, this burner phone videotape confession, I think there was also a document that was notarized, right? In this envelope, it's not open until, you know, he is shot and killed. Is that he got shot and killed? Correct. Yeah, he got gunned down. Then it all comes to light where he's basically exonerating, you know, 
Chris, I think that's very powerful, but I do think it's so messy. There's so many names. There's so many things that don't match up. It's so confusing. There's so many different suspects. I, I go back to this where I started. To me, if I got assigned to this case today, I'm on the cold case team. I would, you know, let's let's take the DNA uh, from the two women. Let's those two people. Let's start with them. I mean, those people we know, you know, their DNA is in or on those those women. So that we know for sure. So that's where you have to start. Well, the prosecutor said those women are prostitutes. When people say, "Well, they had multiple contributors," they did. There were there were multiple contributors. Um, it, you know that that they found, but they just couldn't isolate who those contributors were, other than the two that we've already discussed. Yeah, the prosecutor says, "Well, the women are prostitutes." Uh, we've had people look at their, you know, look these women up. Uh, we've had private investigators. We can't find any arrest records for these women for anything. Whether that is that may or may not be true, and if you know, regardless. Let, we found the DNA on them. So that's right. I don't care if they're prostitutes or not, but I don't believe they are. Whatever men put that DNA uh, on those two women have to be where you start. And then whatever other forensic evidence you can gather from the house, start with all that. Because I think all the he said, she said pointing fingers is never going to solve the case. There's just too many puzzle pieces that don't fit. And I mean, it's hard to figure out who's telling the truth or partial truths, or maybe part of that's true and it's not all true. And it's, it's so confusing. It boggles my mind though, that you've got a forensic, you always want a forensic component. If you would have told me like, if there were no forensics here, then I'd be like, God, this is just, it's a really, it's a really mishmash of a lot of different people implicating different people. But when you've got this DNA and the victims, and then when you say, the DNA from the one woman's mouth is matched to a Gary police officer's son. Now my alarm bells are really going off like, huh, I wonder why he didn't get talked to. Hmm. I mean, the fact that these women didn't even know each other is so important. I think that's, you're telling me two women who don't know each other, they just end up in a ballpark nude and half nude. One of the women, Sheila, she, her husband was in jail that night or that day. And Michelle, this woman, uh, there's a woman named Michelle, her friend, um, Sheila's friend. She had gone over to Sheila's house and Sheila said, hey, you know, can I use your phone? My my husband's in jail and he's going to call. And so Michelle said, yeah, of course, you know, because he was going to call later that evening. Michelle said, why don't you just come over earlier? So she goes over there. 11 o'clock at night, Liz is at the door. And so Michelle lets Liz in and Liz says, hey, you know, um, can I use your phone? Um, she wanted to page somebody. So she pages somebody and 20 minutes later, the phone rings. And so she, she hangs up that phone call and she says, Michelle, let's go to the liquor store. Michelle's like, no, I'm not going to the liquor store. It's like around 1 a.m. or whatever it is. And Sheila's laying on the couch. She said, just to shut her up, I'll go. And so she goes to the liquor store. Unfortunately, it cost her her life. Then Michelle had given one of the women, I believe Sheila, her house keys and said, you know, here's the keys to get into my house. And her car keys were on that ring. You know how we keep our car keys and our house keys on one ring. So she said, just make sure you, you, you know, get back here and, you know, because I have to work in the morning. So the morning comes, the women don't return. 
and Michelle calls the police and they don't take her very seriously, it sounds like. And then later she calls the police again. And so finally police realize there's these two women in the ballpark that here's a woman who called and said she's missing two friends. I believe what they did is they contacted her and they then went to her house and she says, you know what? I saw a piece of paper with the name Chris on it and a, it looks like a pager number. That was introduced into trial, that there was a pager number and the name Chris, all right? So it was assumed, presumed, whatever, that these women went to meet up with the person on that phone because, you know, Liz had written down this phone number with the name Chris on it. To this, to this very day, we have never seen that piece of paper with the name Chris on it. It has never surfaced. I'm telling you, I'm not a police officer, but if somebody tells me there's like five homicides, even if there's one, that there's some physical evidence with a phone number and the name Chris, you'd think that they would seize that. We don't even know the phone records. Who did they call? I think that could solve this case. Who did Liz call that night? And Michelle actually star 69, you know, her on her phone to see if she could get a hold of who Liz had called so she could get her keys back. Nobody to this, to our knowledge, it's never been admitted into trial. We don't know who she called. I would think that would be the first thing you would do. Let's get the phone records. Let's get the phone records and see who did she call. I think the phone records are equally important as the DNA. She, Liz called somebody and she was meeting somebody. Who's, we don't know who's, who it Whose was. car was it that was over there? It's a great question. So Liz had borrowed a car from a man. Um, I'll just call him TB. She borrowed a car from a guy and we have not seen any records of him. So presumably she drove the car to the ball field? Yeah, that's another good question. She drove the car to the ball field, is murdered. How did then the perpetrators get home? Maybe they walked. I guess that's plausible in February of, you know, 2000. I don't know. But there's so many unanswered questions. And, and you're an attorney. You know this. People are supposed to be convicted on the standard of proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And I just don't think that burden of proof today. This is the problem with false confessions. Especially, you know, Chris's case, he went to trial in 2001. So you're talking 22 years ago. I don't think we really got aware of false confessions, coarse confessions. To me, personally, it's more like the last 10 years, let's say. Like we've kind of really, I mean, it's been more in the mainstream. It's been more in the press. In 2001, you're on a jury. You hear there's a confession. It's pretty much checkmate. My client, Chester Weger in the Star Rock Murders, 1960. 1960, you think any people in those jury had any clue there was a false confession, but they spared him the death penalty. And I want to know why, if a man's convicted of five murders, why didn't he get the death penalty? Did the jury decide not to give it to him? I don't know who decided not to, but his sentence was 300 years. So I think when you have a confession at that time in 2001, it's pretty much checkmate unless you've got some... And you could have, I've seen cases where people got like eight alibi witnesses at the pool hall. You know, eight of my friends were there, they saw me, and people were like, oh, they're all lying. You know, it's like they don't care. You got to have a forensic component. So I think, <laughs> I hope people aren't listening to this going, oh my God, that was the most confusing podcast I've ever heard. Yeah, there's, there's so many names. There's multiple murders. There's multiple suspects. 
At the end of the day, I think the key, Andy, because it is confusing, the, the key to the listeners would be there were two crime scenes, five victims. Mr. Bynum was arrested um, and we believe they were false confessions. And when people ask why, if you look at his statements, they don't match the crime scene. In one statement, he says that that 12 year old boy LB was standing next to the male victim that kids testified he never, he was in his room the whole time. It, he testifies that, or excuse me, Chris also says that the, the child on the couch is five. It's an 18 month old. He says that he and Anthony Jeffers were tussling. Anthony Jeffers is the man who was um, killed in the home. And the police even said that Jeffers was seated and fell forward. So there's no way he could have been tussling with this man. He also says that the women were running toward him. I believe one woman was did have a gunshot to the chest, but they were all shot execution style. Every one of them. His, his statements do not match the crime scene whatsoever. So as we sit here today, just to wrap this up, Chris Bynum is still in prison. He's been in prison for 23 years and counting. So people out there that hear this that want more, where can they go to read more, learn more? What can they do? So it's a great question. We, we, we're still investigating. I mean, we, we want justice for these women and the man. I mean, all five victims, they've, you know, we want to make sure that, um, you know, that we believe Chris didn't commit these crimes. Um, we, we have not, we were starting to do, you know, podcasts. Uh, there's a, there are newspaper articles. Um, if somebody has specific questions, they can go. There is a, a petition that was was um, circulated in 2020. It's free Chris Bynum. So it's free Chris, C-H-R-I-S-B-Y-N-U-M. Um, I did not do this petition. I wasn't even involved in the case in 2020. Um, but it gives a pretty good o- overview on the case. And then if somebody has any direct questions, somebody who can maybe possibly help us with anything, um, please, you know, contact us at cjpa at pnw.edu. Again, it's cjpa at pnw.edu. And um, that will come to me, to my project manager, and we will absolutely respond. Well, Dr. Nikki Ali Jackson, it was great having you on the podcast. You've piqued my interest now. It's like, I want to do five more episodes on this case. I'm so intrigued. Let's stay in touch. Uh, If you've got some breaking news or some kind of updates, we'll get back here and uh, we'll talk about it. So thank you. Thanks again for having me. I really appreciate it. And Chris, thanks to you for for allowing me to to share um, this case with you as well. Stay tuned, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of Ron Cold Convictions and Cold Cases. We'll be back in two weeks, every other Thursday with a new episode. And I look forward to talking with everybody soon.